Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Green Book Podcast. I am Lenny Murphy, your host. So glad that you've chosen to spend some time with us today and by us. I mean, it's not just me. I have guests. And what guests they are. These guys have been here before individually, and now we're having them back collectively. So second time appearance for Dave McGowan. And for Grant McCracken, Dave and Grant, welcome. Hey, hey nice to see you, Lenny. Pleasure. It's a pleasure to be seen. It's a pleasure to see you guys. So for those who may not have listened to our individual sessions, let's go through the quick curriculum vitae, if you will. Since on my screen, I see you first, Dave, then why don't you start and then Grant, we'll go to you. Sure. Well, it's good to be back, Lenny. By the voice, you can tell I'm an Aussie. Originally, I live in Bangkok lived in different parts of Asia for the last 27 years, mostly worked for big ad agencies as the head of insights and strategy. In the last few years, I've been running a little consultancy out of Asia called Bibliosexual, where I help companies figure out what the story is behind their brand or what is the story that they should latch on to to help their brand. Thank you, Dave. Grant. Hey, yeah, I'm an anthropologist. I came out of graduate school at just the time that anthropologists were beginning to study contemporary American culture. So that's what I've been doing for several decades. And the way I go about things, I guess, methodologically speaking, I want to combine anthropology and ethnography. And for me, that's where the magic happens. It's in the combination of those two things. And increasingly, I'm adding a third term, and that's what I call the Griff Observatory, which is kind of not so much now listening to consumers or tracking the culture from which they come, but trying to get a glimpse of the future as I think I see it unfolding in the near and middle future. So I just wrote a book called The Return of the Artisan, and I'm just now working on a book called Gravity Well, and that's me, I guess. Yeah. So Grant, the reason that we're here is actually on the last time you were on, we talked about this idea of the watchers on the wall, which was a term we both seemed to really gravitate to. And the thinking was that periodically it would be great to get smart folks together to step back and look at big things, look at macro trends, look at ideas on what may be coming in terms of of culture and just overall society, and we could take that wherever it goes. So that's what we're here to do. We're recording this right before Christmas of 2022, and we've had a few months of interesting times, as it seems that's what we live in now permanently is interesting times. and. Would love to get your take, both of you, on kind of a few key themes that have popped out for you for this year so far, and a few starter ideas for next year. So, Grant, why don't we start with you, and then Dave, we'll we'll go to you. Sure. I guess one of the things I've been thinking about, and this is new since we talked last, Lenny, is so I've kind of been writing this up in a series of Substack essays. And the problem, it seems to me, 
is the possibility that culture is now the culprit. I'd never thought this before. In fact, I always thought that culture was kind of the ballast that kept us even whatever was happening on the surface, ballast was there in the substructure and the substack and keeping us relatively for all of our confusion and difficulty keeping us on a single track. And now I'm beginning to think that part of the problem is that culture itself is broken and that there are several ways of looking at that. One is that I think it's responsible for the failure to launch phenomenon that we're seeing with young men who get to the edge of adulthood coming out of high school or coming out of college and just freezing because they don't know what to do. I think that's partly something imposed upon them by a breakdown in culture. So that's one issue I'm worried about. I think that breakdown in culture, and, and I mean that, you know, the, people are always having a go at culture on the grounds that they're morally outraged, that it's, you know, impoverishing our children. And, you know, there's a, always a creed core of one kind or another as people have a go at culture. I'm not talking about that at all. This for me is a technical issue. Our notion of culture is broken at a deep level in a technical way. That's my supposition. So that's what I'm concerned with. And I think, as I say, it helps explain FDL. I think it helps explain the missing middle of American politics. For Sorry, Dave, to be parochial in that sense, but my focus is always American culture. And then I think it makes things enormously difficult when it comes to marketing and branding to the extent that we no longer have a common language and a single set of preoccupations with which to work. And everyone says, oh, well, it's all about multiplicity. And that's certainly true. But I wonder, and this is where, anyhow, I'm going to shut up. That's where, I, those, are, those are some of the things concerning me at the moment. No, thank you. We, we will dive in closer now. Dave, I'm listening to Grant and thinking. That in itself is an interesting thing, simply because obviously Grant tends to be a bit parochial about, you know, North America. I'm sort of parochial about everything except North America. <laughs> but what's interesting, of course, is that same debate. And you raised the issue about, you know, the transition of young men into adulthood and how it sort of, in the traditional senses, we thought it should happen. It stopped in a lot of ways. And we started to see this particularly starting in Japan nearly 30 years ago, and it's it sped up across a lot of Asia in the last 25 years. So there's different sorts of role models, right? It's not so much, I think, the breaking of culture as the fact that culture has now changed dynamically in terms of what we expect. And so you have these different debates. And I guess the whole thing about the LGBTQI and transgenders and all that sort of thing is one offshoot of it. You have the virtualization of relationships. 20 years ago, if we'd been doing this exact thing, we'd have been laughing about the first reports of, you know, some young Japanese guy who had actually literally applied to the government marriage bureau to marry his favorite anime character and was allowed to do it. Right. And we would have laughed about, oh, that's that weird Japanese thing. And they're such goofy people. But now, of course, we know globally that we have people who are in deep relationships with anime or manga or virtual characters or virtual beings. And these are as real as Lenny, your relationship with your good wife and all those massive kids you have running around in the background in your house. Right. I mean, it is just what it is today. So we have that going on. I think one of the other th big things for me this year was if we'd done this call two years ago, sort of at the peak of COVID, we would have been talking about the new normal. And I was a staunch believer of that's a bit of BS, right? And I think two years later, what I would say is the new normal, the sense of the new normal is a bit of BS because actually all the trends 
that we thought two years ago were the new normal have either retracted or they've continued, but they're actually slower. And now we can actually see they are just part of a longer term trend. And I'll give you an example. Like I've done a lot of work the last two years on the concept of work from home and how we work and, you know, working dynamics for some different clients. And of course, if you ask people in Jakarta or in Delhi or in Boston, you know, do you want to work from home? Of course, an awful lot of people are going to say, the great majority will probably say yes, right? But the reality of it is, in some ways, it's impossible. And the other thing is that there's a lot of, if you like, shadows and shades to what we mean by work from home. And a good example of that is I did some work where we surveyed, we didn't use surveys, we used an artificial research platform, which we might get onto later on about using AI, but we used an AI platform to understand in 20 cities around the world attitudes towards work from home. Now, what we found was a real difference, and the difference came down to things like this. Here in Bangkok, you know, yes, there's a desire for work from home, but part of the work from home desirability is, does my company have the technology to allow us to work from home? And on face value, you would say, well, I'd get the same response in Boston, right? Because the company have, but in Boston, that might be got to do with do you have the right sharing tools? Do you have the right tools to allow us to, you know, get material to and from each other in the right ways, to share ideas online in the right ways? In a place like Bangkok, part of that is, will my company provide air conditioning in my home? Because one of the key factors in many parts of the world and joys of going to work is the fact that you get to work in an air-conditioned environment. And so we've known this, particularly in tropical regions around the world in those big cities that, you know, yes, you put up with two hours of sitting in traffic every day to get to work, another two hours getting home. But part of the joys of that was you spent 10 or 12 hours a day in an air-conditioned environment. So that's part of the work from home technology that has to be taken on board. It's no good me working from home if I'm going to sweat to death, right? So you've got to think about those things. And the other thing about work from home All these trends that we've seen coming out of or we thought came out of or driven by COVID, we sometimes forget that they're trends for the extreme minority. And so a lot of statistical evidence around the world sort of thing. When you say work from home, who are you talking to? Because it turns out that 97% of all jobs in the world cannot possibly be done from work from home because they actually involve being somewhere else from home to do the job. And we're talking about everything from working on farms to working in factories, most service jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, work from home is actually a very elitist concept for a very few. And it might apply in North America in ways that doesn't apply at all in the great majority of the rest of the world. And so sometimes when I get onto things like this or panels like this that are international stuff, we've got to take on board those things. What's the reality in in the different parts of the world of trends that we think are happening? So I'm listening to both of you and I see some connective tissue potentially. And I was actually doing a podcast earlier this week and we're talking about the role of empathy. And it got us into this whole idea of what human connection really means. And one of the things that I had talked about, and, and I think that there's some relevance here, is not just the positive disruptive influence of technology, but the negative disruptive influence of technology in disintermediating relationships, disintermediating our ability to actually engage. So Dave, to your point, I've worked from home for 20 years, right? but I'm an antisocial asshole. So it's not that big of a deal. 
But other people don't appreciate those things as well because they need that human interaction over and over again. And I think that there's a component that's developing and is affecting culture, and particularly, Grant, to your point of the, let's call it, you know, millennials and, and below, for lack of a better term, where they're losing the ability to engage and talk and share and interact with other humans in the way that we always have throughout history. And that is creating, I believe, in my sense, is, I have no data to back this up, it's just a theory, a artificial reliance upon technology. It's like eating sugar, right? I mean, it's it's a substitute. There's no nourishment there. And there's no nourishment in the engagement with uh, anime characters, right? Or, you know, somebody marrying their AI assistant or what, you know, that movie a couple years ago with Joaquin Phoenix. But I think those are real things that there is an angst that is developing in our society that is driven by this sense of disintermediation and disconnection with other humans that does have profound and potentially severe consequences, certainly in America, potentially globally. I've tracked the uh, issues going on in Japan as well, Dave. And I think that, that that's, I don't know what to do with it, but it seems like there's an issue there. And it makes it really hard for us to be able to, as marketers, to understand this changing psychographics and the emotional profile of consumers and their needs, and just as people to figure out where do we go from there. So, you know, Lenny, as you say that, one of the things that always sticks with me is, Grant, you and I sort of in the same age bracket, right? And we, we grew up in a world where we watched television, you know, we read some comic books, da-da-da, we went to the movies, etc. But an awful lot of the, the role models that we saw on screens or listened to on radio or read about in magazines and stuff were the inevitability of growing up. And, you know, before we started, you asked me about, you know, going to visit family at Christmas and kids and grandkids. And we grew up with that world, right? So if you think about it, whenever you were growing up in America or, or Canada or Australia, you know, we were watching television and we were forced to watch only whatever it was, three or four channels as we grew up. And because of that, we ended up watching shows that maybe mums dictated or dad dictated or our younger sister dictated or whatever, right? And so, but a lot of those things were about the inevitability of family and the inevitability of then having your own family. And this was the norm in mythologies, in the way folklore, in everything throughout history. But now you have whole generations that can be brought up. And again, if you go to Japan, for example, a recent study I read pointed out that if you were under 30 years of age, a male in Japan, you may have lived your whole life watching anime and reading manga. That's your prime source of entertainment and stimulus. And the point was, was made that the top 10 over the last 20 years, the top 10 manga and anime streams whether on TV or video or just reading the books, none of them involved a family situation. None of them had a character who ever got married or had kids. None of them. So you're now having generations of people who grow up and all of their entertainment, all of their stimulus is saying being single for the rest of your life is normal, right? And so that's one little snippet of this dramatic change in the way in which we're being fed a concept of what's normal, if you like, for the future. Mm. Great. 
What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of we're being fed. I think one of the things that characterizes the contemporary world is that there are no captains of consciousness any longer. And none of us, almost none of us, are naive about what we get from the media. I think people are superbly good at viewing and thinking about what it is they're viewing and making life choices in a way that perhaps they were not so good at, perhaps after World War II, somewhat clumsy and clueless and conformist. That moment, I think, has passed. So I'm sort of pretty confident that for some purposes, we're in a good position. And maybe as an expression of that, this relates to the notion, Dave, of working from home. I guess all of us did lots of work during COVID. And I talked to a number of women who were heads of their households and working hard to get the family through the horror that was that period of confinement and you know terror. And when they learned that they might be called back to work, they said, listen, here's the deal. When a CEO asks me to come back to the office place, he's putting his hand in my pocket. He's taking two hours a day that I've devoted to my family. And then I say to myself, well, look, I've just demonstrated that I can work from home, that I can do my corporate work. You know, the theme that women kept coming back to was, you know, women are good at this. Men, maybe not, but women are really good at doing many things, sometimes at once. So it was possible for us to get work done. But more to the point, when I say to myself, well, why do people want us to come back to the office place? I think that office was a kind of theater in which people like me dressed up and did our makeup and did our hair and showed up as a kind of theater that was an act of deference to senior leaders who could watch the parking lot fill every morning and people come in to kind of participate in the celebration of their majesty. And when these women see this issue that way, their reaction is really unparliamentary. I mean, I can't tell you, I can't use the language. The language they use in these interviews is not parliamentary language. They speak ill of these guys. And they usually, you know, there's usually women dressing up for men is the way they put it. So for them, I think there are some deep motives that say, I took that time that I used to devote to a commute and I spent it on my family, and the person who asks me to give that back is stealing from me and my family to rebuild this act of theatre. Yeah, and I think we see that everywhere, Grant. I think we see that recognition of the hours that were lost, right, in some way. Of course, there's then the counter-debate, which is, you know, constantly we hear the stories of, well, I'm not doing the two or three hour commute every day, but I'm actually working those two or three hours at home, so, but I'm not getting paid for that, right? So, you know, the argument very strongly put by somebody I was interviewing in India was, wait a minute, I used to commute for three and a half hours a day and work 10 hours in the office, but I'm now working 14 hours from home. So surely my boss owes me a 20 or 30% pay rise, right? Because one of the great things was the awareness that commutes were unpaid work, right? And we wouldn't have normally have done it. But the flip side of that that I found interesting, Grant, was at the height of all this work from home, talking to people about commutes through Zoom and things like this and doing those sorts of interviews, right, was, yes, all the things you've raised, but then when we got onto it, there would always be this sort of, yeah, but I sort of missed the commute. Now, they didn't actually miss the commute itself. They didn't miss the physical grind of sitting in traffic for three hours or sitting on a crowd-packed train for an hour and a half each way. But this is what they did miss. It was 
what we used to call, you know, the third place. And a lot of people, what they were articulating was and hadn't realised that that two or three hours a day of commuting was the ultimate third place. It was the place that wasn't work, wasn't home, and you could be and think whatever you want it to be. Isn't that why God created Starbucks? (laughs) Well, according to Starbucks, yes. (laughs) But given the great majority of people actually, you know, it's a funny thing about Starbucks because we raise this issue, right, in a lot of places. And a lot of people sort of said, yeah, I go to Starbucks a lot, but I don't actually sit there. I do takeaway, right? So it's not actually the location of the third place. It's an interesting idea. But this idea that the commuting was a third place and what people were saying was, I don't miss the grind at all. I don't want to have to do it, but I wish I could have that two or three hours in a totally neutral environment, right? Like my commute was a totally neutral environment. And so that sort of missing sort of piece in life has has come to the fore. Yeah, very good. So is there something to that? Can I? Oh, I'm sorry, Grant. Go ahead, please. I just wanted to respond, Lenny, to your remarks on what's happened to localities. And I think at least what I'm seeing, I live in effectively on the rim of New York City. I I live about 40 miles out of it. So it's a classic kind of bedroom suburb construction where people are shipping in and out of the big city and effectively most of us sometimes just sleeping in the suburb. That was the old model. But what we've seen happen probably in the last two or three or four years is that the locality has become much more dense and much more social, much more convivial. So I've lived here for 15 years, and I didn't used to know my neighbors. Now I do. Now I have quite a vivid sense of what their lives are like. More to the point, the artisanal revolution has created the small town at the center of this suburb used to be pretty ordinary, and it was sort of embarrassed about the fact that it wasn't New York City, the grand and sophisticated place down the road. But now it's filled with really interesting artisans cheesemongers and bakers and butchers and these exquisite little restaurants, all of those have sprung up as people follow the mandate of an Alice Waters and the artisanal revolution. And so the locality has its own centers of gravity in a way that it didn't have to. So that just, at least for this locality, there are some good things happening. Yeah, actually, Grant, you know, I I just, I'm not sucking up, but I just finished reading your your latest book. And... uh... I'm so sorry. No, no. And one of the interesting things is, you know, I've read, I guess, most of your books over the years and sort of, it's always interesting to me because, of course, yes, you do take a very North American, you know, centre to these things, but always an element of truth everywhere, right? And of course, you know, if you take the artisanal, it is true that in cities all over the world, we've seen this happening on the fringes of the cities, right? More likely. We've seen this happening for quite a while, right? Where... You know, it was started with the waves of the bakeries, right? In many parts of, you know, non-European sort of world, we saw 10 years ago, a lot of people, especially sort of like early middle-aged working women deciding to set up a bakery, to do that instead, right? And it was, you know, I'm going to make special types of bread. I'm going to copy some German style or some unique style or even a unique local style of bread as we have in different parts of Asia. But then we saw it with other craft things. And it's usually been where it's people from the middle class who've then decided at some point in life to take an alternative sort of route, sometimes part-time, sometimes as a hobby that bleeds into something to make a bit of money off, and then for some it becomes a full-time thing. And we've seen the growth of the craft markets, et cetera, and all these people that on a Saturday will haul this stuff the 40 miles back into the city 
to some special location that's set up as a once a week craft market. We've seen that booming everywhere, right? And I think that is partly a reflection of the need for self and for self-worth. But if you go back to your thing about why the women you were talking to got angry about bosses calling you back to the office was, it's the anonymity of big scale work, right? And the desire to be somebody on your own. And so it's not necessarily entrepreneurship in the same way that we sometimes talk about entrepreneurship, you know, the Elon Musk type thing or something like that. It's more about self-worth, I think, and just trying to find something that I can contribute or I can do that is a little bit unique. And it could be just unique because I use a different seed on the topping of my bread rolls, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Well, I think it's about fulfillment, right? Yeah. yeah. Which goes back to then this idea that I, I can't shake and you guys are the experts. So you can tell me whether I'm thinking about this the correct way, but, and circle back to grant your original comment, you know, that I, I do think that we have a crisis of culture that is based on a profound emptiness for many people. And all the things we're talking about, right, the, especially the artisanal component, the, the creator economy and all of its permutations, right, whether you are you have a sub stack or you're a you know, YouTube creator or, you know, making artisanal bread, whatever the case may be. I see those things as expressions of trying to find meaning in a world where our usual sense of meaning in terms of connections with other people or even a shared and common framework of reality is you were talking about Dave, the TV, the, back in those days that all that we grew up in, we had a shared reality, right? It was consistent. That is not the case anymore. The, I actually recently just did a study about attitudes towards COVID and all things related to COVID. And what we found is that there was an incredibly strong correlation between the level of television watched of broadcast television, of cable television watched for one population. Yeah, I guess what we'll put out there, people who are, who are very much in favor of kind of the mandates and vaccines and all of those things, right? That was the topic. And folks who did not engage in watching cable television had a diametrically opposite view, right? I mean, truly opposing realities. There was no commonality in perception for them because there was no common shared reality. And I think those things are challenges that we have to face in one form or fashion. So I don't know, what do you guys think about that? It sounds like the various pieces into which we're now broken are themselves pretty intense and actual and real for us and meaningful. Are they? Or I think we're creating our meaning, right, uh, Grant? So I guess, it, and I haven't voiced it this way, but if that supposition that until twenty, thirty years ago, culturally there is a fairly consistent shared reality. Part of that did have to do with the information that we were ingesting and how it was delivered to us, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we all had individual opinions, but we were operating from a, a shared and common culture. And since that has been fragmented. And I think predominantly because of technology, and I don't mean in the blaming way, technology has just enabled lots of different channels, lots of different permutations. It's freed creativity in many ways. It's freed information in many ways. And that's created lots of fragmentation. But maybe the flip side of that information democratization and freedom has been a sense of social isolation that is having 
dare I say, you know, a, a spiritual impact for us, an emotional Is it impact? isolation or separation? You know, I mean, I, I think right. that's the thing. You know, it's, again, maybe it's, you know, old white men of our generation sort of look at this and go, oh, you know, but everybody's not thinking the same way. Um, <laughs> right. Whereas, you know, when I talk to, a, you know, my own kids who were raised in different parts of Asia and stuff and whatever, and but when I talk to younger people across Asia as a, as a mass, right, what you find is it's more about their self-identity is different and they're fine with the fact that self-identity is different, right? So. You know, it goes back to a whole bunch of the, the social debates we've had. I mean, the, again, the LGBTQI debate, you know, and, and sort of older white men find it hard to come to grips with it generally, and younger people sort of say, yeah, it's fine, right? You be whoever you want to be. It's, it's fine, right? In the same way that there was a point at some point in the 60s, 70s, and 80s where the world was basically being defined by what it saw on its screens, and what it saw on its screens was primarily defined on what was coming out of America. And a little bit out of England, right? So the standard TV shows and the standard movies, right, that were the things. But these days, that doesn't work. You know, we've seen like the rise of the Korean soap opera over the last 20 years as maybe one of, if not the dominant TV content in the world, right? The rise of Korean pop stars, right? And BTS, the biggest band in the world, right? Now, 20 years ago, if you'd said to us that you could have a giant band that came from anywhere outside of America or, or, or England. Was, it was, remember, when we were young, like if you found a band that was out of Germany, you thought that was a real freak show, right? <laughs> now it's different. You know, I can remember 10 years ago talking to the guy who was the, I can't say which company it was, but it, he was running the biggest language learning company in the world. And he told me, well, you know, the fastest growing language in the world is not English, it's Korean. And the reason for that was young people around the world wanted to understand what the words meant on the songs they were singing. Wow. So, you know, this is where we've got to start to look at things. It's very, very different, right? And it's a different thing about, I agree, Grant, you know, it, it's not as simple as to say that we just used to have a single role model and then we all reflected what that role model was. But the truth is that we do know that the choices people make of what they watch, entertain themselves with, educate themselves with, will affect what they do, right? And the fact is the models are very, very different, very diverse. Yeah. You know, and we make choices. We make weird choices about who we are. I mean, this past week, the world's biggest sporting event in the world was held, right? The World Cup final. Now, I don't know if you read about this in America, but were you saying what was happening in Bangladesh about the World Cup? No, right? So for some strange reason, Bangladesh, which is not a very good footballing nation, right? But they love football. So they adopted the Argentina team. And right from the beginning of the tournament, you would see if you had, like I have dozens of Facebook friends in Bangladesh, and you would see them all dressed up in their Argentina, their Messi shirts. And as the tournament wore on, these it got bigger and bigger. And they were literally, there were outdoor big screenings in the major open areas of Dhaka with, Tens of thousands of people went to watch Argentina play. Now, it got so big that around the time of the semi-final, Argentina became aware of this. And the Argentina TV started showing film of Bangladeshis en masse supporting Argentina. And it got to the point where, for the first time ever, the Argentine government appointed a full-time ambassador to Bangladesh. 
and signed an economic agreement, which they've never had before. Now, think about this. This is two countries on the other side of the world that have absolutely nothing in common. It was a freak show. The day of the final, Bangladesh went absolutely nuts when Messi won. Now, you know, this is the world we live in today where it's fine for one nation to identify as another nation, if you like. Yes. Right? I mean, Grant, it's the sort of thing that, you know, anthropologists drool at, right? It's like, well, that's one thing. What is this going on here with this, right? It is because we can be very selective of like, this is who we're going to be, right? Yeah. And we're not frightened of, of the difference in the heterogeneity that enters our life when we're suddenly Argentinian, despite the fact that we live in Bangladesh. It's kind of all good as far as we're concerned. I like Lenny's point about, well, I wonder, in fact, if fandom isn't one answer to Lenny's concern. You know, there's nothing more joyful than fandom. You watch people celebrating a win and there's just the madness and the joy of what they're experiencing. And fandom is so intense and so locating and so dense and so fights the enemy you're talking about, Lenny, I think, that even when you lose, your life is meaningful and the experience in a strange kind of way is joyful. You know, you're out there in the street with all those people mourning. There's this kind of density of the connection you have with all of these other mourners. Anyhow, so there are still moments when, and I think, you know, people have been talking about this recently about, you know, what's the definitive version of a song of popular music. And it used to be, well, it was the song is laid down on the best track in the best studio. That was the definitive version. And now people are saying, no, no, who cares about the studio version or versions of a song? It's really the best performance. And were you there? And if you were there, the cred that comes from you being able to say, no, I heard Jimi Hendrix win. We'll talk about a dating reference. There it is. But that notion, right, that what matters to you and what matters to you and a community of fellow either joyful people or, or suffering ones is actually happening in a temporal moment. And that's kind of interesting too. And that's almost back to the locality thing I was trying to talk about in my little community. It's about, you know, people can come and go, move in, move through this community. But unless you've lived here, and we're not being snobs about it. There's no snobbery attached to residents in this community. But that you live here and that I live here gives us a connection it didn't used to give us. So I'm wondering, Lenny, if it's possible whether we're smuggling in new variations on the connection theme, soccer, stardom, living in a little town in Connecticut, that sort of, maybe we're finding new ways to make the connection. But even as it looks like, if we can't get our kids out of childhood into adulthood, something's broken. And our culture is stands condemned of having, you know, if you can't do that, you're effectively done as a culture. And that seems to be true of us these days. Have either of you seen numbers for these kids in crisis? Depends on what you define as crisis. I, I saw numbers recently this week about the number of kids that were on medications for, you know, quote unquote, psychiatric or, or emotional issues. And it, it is staggering, like, oh my God, type of numbers. Right. So some of that's kind of touted as being, you know, long tailed after effects from the, the COVID crisis. Maybe. I'm sure it's a piece of it. I have a hard time buying it's all of it. I think that that aggravated issues already there around disconnection. You said community. And I think that's actually a, a really great frame of reference for this, right? What does community give us? 
it gives us a sense of connection. It gives us we're, we're a part of something. Our uniqueness connects to other uniqueness, you know, components into a collective whole. And, you know, we have these sub communities that exist, but all connected to a larger community. And I think it's that sub community connection that is stretched and potentially breaking where these, you know, each sub community seems to be potentially now somewhat isolated, disconnected from the others around them and free floating. And what's happening to the individuals within that, I think that that disconnection may be occurring as well. Yeah. How do we mature and grow as humans? I, I personally know for myself is, as an individual, I have never grown in isolation. Oh, the only time that I have ever experienced emotional, spiritual, intellectual growth is through interacting with other people, period. That has been my experience. You know, I may be able to read something and it may stimulate it, but if it's just sitting there in my head and I'm not sharing it with other people and having that discussion, it never becomes actualized. It never becomes something real and tangible that I could act upon. So maybe it's my own bias speaking here, but I, I have never met anyone else who didn't have a similar experience. So this concept of disconnection, of maybe not being part of communities, gravely concerns me. To your point, Grant, so I think we stop growing. We're not challenged. We don't have the ability to really grow and mature as humans without that interplay overall. But I may just be an old white man who's just cranky and saying, you know, oh, back in my day, I mean, you know, it could be. But I'm also a parent of, as you, Dave would like to point out, lots of kids and of various ages, and I see in their lives. And sometimes I'm like, I don't understand how that works. So anyway, there's my rant. And a fair rant it is too. I mean, I think that thing of distancing, of interaction, if you like, and the stretch between the two, right? We have a different concept and a different world that's developing in terms of what that means. And like most things, when you get to a major juxtaposition in life, in history, in the way culture is changing, you know, it's, it'll, it'll take a while for us to figure out what's really happening. But it also takes a while for the individuals to actually make or break in those situations, right? I mean, historically, if you think about things like, I don't know, great plagues of the Middle Ages and stuff like that, right? It took a long while for society to sort of settle itself back down and figure out how things were going to work, right? When suddenly a third of the people die in, you know, in a year and everybody just gets out of the cities and then it takes a, a century before it all comes back together again, right? So what does it mean? I mean, it, it's sort of an interesting dynamic. The ability to live your life, you know, through a screen is something that, literally live your life through a screen, not watch other families on TV or something like that, but literally do everything possible on a screen and never have to leave the single chair or your bed or your couch is something that mankind's never seen before, right? And so evolutionary, we're not geared for it. We're not prepared. And it might take a while for us to sort of figure this thing out. And there will be major crisis in the, in the process. And I think part of what you talked about, about the isolation of young people and then there are, you know, a lot of people going on medications, et cetera, to help, you know, cope with these things. That's one answer. On the flip side, you've got, you know, the relationship to young women not having kids, right? The oversimplification. And in many parts, you know, of, of Asia and Europe, you've got these shrinking populations now. And you have, again, older, usually older male politicians getting up in their parliaments, their governments, their congresses, and sort of saying, you know, 
if you were a you know a true Italian, if you were a true Korean woman, you would be having three kids tomorrow. You know, you're just you're not proud of your country and you're not doing your right thing. And you've got all these young women going, why do I need to have kids? You know, and it's not about you know the simplistic ways to say, well, we want to well, we'll have state paid childcare and we'll supplement you know maternity leave, and and then they do all that, and there's a minor blip, and then it still goes back to declining birth rates. Why is that? It's because young women are going, but I don't need to have a kid or I don't have to have more than one kid, right, to fulfill my maternal need. I only need one. I don't need three, which is fine for the individual. It's maybe not good if you believe the population growth is a necessity. And then that's being questioned. Yeah, or they're not finding men that launched and could be good providers. (laughs) But that are interested, right? So, I mean... We often hear this thing about, you know, lonely young guys sitting in their rooms just playing computer games all day. But what we don't read enough about is a lot of those men don't feel lonely and they feel very satisfied with just playing computer games all day and they feel very threatened by doing anything else. Now, is that a good or a bad thing? Ask me in 100 years' time. So, guys, I'm going to be conscious of time. I knew this was going to go longer than your average podcast, so do our listeners. Appreciate you hanging in there. So we wanted two objectives. We wanted to talk about things, trends that we have seen. I think we've done that. Now, what do we expect to see? Let's take a little bit of time and maybe even have something maybe a little more hopeful than declining birth rates and, you know, (laughs) you know, isolated young people on medication. What do we think that all of these things we've talked about? What are some of the positives? What are some of the things that we see shaping that really can be interesting and positively impact while acknowledging we have some stuff we have to navigate as a culture, as a species that we're going to have to work through? They can be problems, but what's the good stuff? So, Grant. Um, Two things that strike me. One is that it feels to me like youth culture is on the verge of fluorescing again. It's been relatively contained and feels like just on the verge of all hell breaking loose in an interesting way. And I sort of thought this would happen as we came out of COVID. We might have a kind of Studios 54 kind of moment where when people having been confined to quarters for so long, we're just going to go nuts. That's not what we're talking about here. There's many things going on, but that's not one of them. The other thing that strikes me as possibility is that as youth culture fluoresces, we might see the corporation become more streamlined. And there's some pretty simple and urgent reasons why that should be so as well. You know, ours is a culture, you you think about how often, you know, we look at previous decades and we think, oh, look, what's happening in one sector of the economy or culture is happening in another. And now that we're entertaining the kind of heterogeneity that Dave was talking about, you can have diverse, dramatically different things happening in our culture at the same time. And here, I think we get an example of fluorescence in youth and streamlining in the corporation. Yeah, I think I agree. I think that it's easy to pick the downside of what's happening to young people. We forget that there's a lot of upside happening as well in terms of, as you say, you know, a, a booming of new forms of subcultures, of new ways of thinking, and those are all good. I mean, if we talk about the fact that, you know, life is about interacting and life is about, you know, growing from learning from experiences, then what I think is we're starting to see that people, not just young people, people of all generations. So, you know, I've talked to my previous session with Lenny about the new life builder, about older people, right, in their 60s and 70s. And one of the great things for me has been in the last 12 months, the 
huge increase that I've seen in conversation around that exact subject, about the growth of the older populations in a more positive way, right? Yes, there's still a lot of negativity and worry about ageing populations. Oh, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. But there's also a lot more discussion about the good side of that, right? The hopeful side of that and why that could be good for society to have an ageing population, why it's the individuals that's it's easier and there's more and more activities going on to make life better for people, of, you know, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, the stuff that I get to look forward to in the very near future. So that's one thing. But the other thing I just wanted to mention was We've seen these great waves of not just in pop culture, but in product services, right? Brands where we've seen these great waves and we saw, you know, like, you know, in the 50s and 60s, American brands sort of overtake the world, you know, Coca-Cola, Levi's, Marlboro, you know, General Motors, that sort of stuff, right? And then, of course, you know, later, 50 years later, we sort of saw Japanese brands to a certain extent do that sort of thing, you know, with the Sonys and the Toyotas. But now we're starting to see that wave again in a really big way, right? Not just from Korea, but more importantly, from places like China and India, where we're starting to see not maybe not affecting the United States yet, but in the rest of the world, like, you know, in the car industry, the big boom brands in the car industry are all Chinese brands, right? That's where the massive growth is happening is through Chinese brands. Very innovative cars, very innovative sales models. We're seeing that with mobile phones, right? We're seeing that with all sorts of technologies. And Put aside that it's Chinese, what's interesting to me is we're starting to see these new waves of products and services coming from places that even 10, 15 years ago, we didn't think produced much, right? We didn't think they had much to offer. And so we're starting to see that change. And there's a change in the global dynamics of trade and economics again, but it's also a difference in the way in which when people, again, I think of opening up to, oh, yeah, that's cool. You know, that's cool. It comes from China, great. It comes from India, yeah, that's interesting. Let's try that, you know. And so there's a lot more of those things. And a lot of that, by the way, has been led by the traditional technologies like gaming, right, and the way in which we've adopted games from all over the world without thinking about it. And then later on we find, oh, that game was developed by X in such. What else have they got, right? What else have they got in that country that's interesting, if they can develop a cool game? Can I ask the two of you, one of the things that I thought we might see more of is sometimes called the third 30. And it's the notion that people, when they get to 60, they say to themselves, not I'm going to manage my decline as well as I can, but I'm effectively starting again. Uh, I'm a teenager, has to decide who he or she is. That's what I refer to as the new life builder. And it's a concept that I've been tracking for about 25 years, starting here in Asia and then globally, which is that people at 55 to 65 have that moment where they realise, especially today, because Grant, as you know, like because of longevity and life expectancy, the reality of it is that if you get to 55, 60 and you're sentient at all, you probably realise you're going to be around for another 30 years. So what the heck do I do, right? And it's about finding, it could be as simple as finding a new hobby. It could be as simple as I'm going to start reading Grant McCracken books for the first time, or it could be, travel, or it could be a new job, or it could be, I'm going to set up a new business. We're seeing this blooming of, yeah, what you call the third third, you know, or, you know, what I call new life building, just starting again, right? Well, what am I going to do for the rest of these 30 years? Because I can't just sit here and watch TV the whole time. Yeah, I'll be 52 in February. And our whole family bought a farm in very deeply rural Kentucky. And, you know, it's a, it's a massive shift in life. For my wife and I, but for our children as well. I mean, there is that sense like, is this, is this, 
midlife crisis? Well, no, I did that. I did that already. So, <laughs> you know, so no, I guess it's my halfway crisis, which there's a difference in midlife and halfway, but right there with you, Dave, very, very aware that there's time for a shift, you know, to do something different. So yeah, that's interesting. Guys, put on your prognostication hats just for a minute and think if there's one thing you fully expect, a prediction that you fully expect to see happen, that the insights, marketing and insights organizations need to be aware of in the coming year. What is that? What is that one trend? It's like, man, you, you better pay attention to this because it's going to happen and it's going to have some pretty significant implications. Grant, I picked on you first last time. So Dave, I'm going to pick on you. Okay. Gaming. You know, Lenny, that the market research industry, all the conferences, the IX conferences that you guys work with, or any conference you go to the last five, 10 years, there's been a gradual increase. We must have gamification. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about gaming, right? So in, there are many countries in the world for where mobile games have now become the single most important medium in individuals' lives. So, for example, in most of Asia now, if you're under 40, you spend more time every day playing mobile games than all other media put together, okay? Now, what struck me was that the market research industry is not in those games. Now, I don't mean changing the nature of the game. I mean the fact is that when those people are in those games, the most popular social mediums in the world today are not Facebook or TikTok or LinkedIn. They are the in-game social media within those individual games. And there are literally tens and tens and tens of millions of people that spend hours every day in those in-game chat rooms talking about everything, not talking about the game, talking about everything in life, right? That's where their best friends are. They've never met these people. They have no idea what they really look like, but that's who they spend their time with talking about everything about life with, and we're not in there studying them. And when we talk about gamification, what market researchers usually mean is, oh, we're going to make it fun. We're going to make it more fun to, to fill in a survey. No, no, no. What we have to do is to be part of the game itself and then exploring whatever issues you want to explore. Nothing to do with the game but explore it within the context of the games and where people are spending their time because that is the medium now and of the future is mobile gaming. That's where people want to spend their time. Well, okay. That is a good point. And now we have our next topic for the next time we have you on, Dave. So, yeah, I, I did not realize that statistic. Okay, got it. <laughs> Grant, blow my mind again. You got something else? Right. <laughs> yeah, that was excellent. I think the thing to keep an eye on is the reality that those who are watching CPT, GPT, and chat AI suddenly awakening, as it were, the, you know, the creature has, is now stirring in the lab and about to duplicate acts of consciousness that are indistinguishable from human acts of creativity. So that's coming. In any case, with that aside, the world will continue to fragment. That's something we've talked a lot about and to speed up. And that means that the black swans that disrupt companies will themselves multiply so that our client base will be in a state of uproar as they find their industries suddenly changing. We will, and blue oceans will continue to multiply. As all of this change happens, the smarter the more aggressive, the more entrepreneurial agents in the world will seize the opportunity and create something. And that, you know, somebody's black blue ocean is somebody else's, eventually somebody else's black swan. 
So that means there's more for us to track. There's just more in the heavens out there for us to keep track of. And as we said tonight, you know, a lot of that stuff will just be blip-like. It'll just come and go in a moment. But some things will line up with one another. And that's the thing I'm trying to get at with this gravity well notion. You see moments where things are drawn together and when they become a single thing, that's when they can have extraordinary powers over the lives of consumers and they begin to matter, I think, for us as people who do marketing research. So that's, I think, for me at least, I won't presume to speak for other people, but that's kind of part of the game. Part of the name of the game is casting the net wide and tracking all that stuff that's happening and watching for things that will extinguish themselves and come and go, but other things will line up and begin to exercise a gravitational effect on our clients and the consumers that we study. Okay. I like that as well. Of course, when I hear gravity well, then I also think, well, what about the black hole? And so we, <laughs> we need to avoid that if we can, but you know. All right. So first, where we head in the final thoughts, I hope that you too have enjoyed this as much as I have. I hope our listeners have as well. And let's do this again in a few months. Because I do think it's important for, for folks just to come together and take this broader perspective of things. Whether we're crazy or not remains to be seen, but at least it's certainly something to think about across the board. So thank you both for that. So final thoughts. And as we do final thoughts, where can people find you and engage with you? So Dave, why don't you go first? I guess my final thought is that we all get stuck in these narrow little pathways, right? And so sort of look at the bigger bigger perspective. You know, one of the things that I love is the world started opening up and going back to conferences, right, not just the online ones, right? And the joy for me, you know, without overselling it, has always been you go to a conference not for what's up on the stage but for the conversations you have in the corridors, right, and meeting new types of people. And so the Grant's point, it's massive out there. And we've got to track all sorts of things. And the only way, one way to do that is just be exposed to a lot of different types of stuff, whether that's in person or online or whatever. But go purposely, go find out, go find areas you know nothing about and go and explore those, right? And just try to have a look at a broader sense of what the world is about. Thank you, sir. And where can people find and engage with you, Dave? You look up the, the word bibliosexual. There is only one website that uses that term. And for obvious reasons, because nobody wants to be thought of as a porn site. And that's where you'll find me. <laughs> Except for you, Dave. Except and you're the me. only one that can pull it off, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. Grant, final thoughts and where can people engage with you? Final thoughts, man. I, I guess my feeling is that, you know, for myself at least, I can choose between just the thrilling sensation that the world is on constantly on the boil, you know, and just thrilling to be alive and have the kinds of instruments and measurement devices and detection devices we have at our disposal now as the world has just got so interesting. That's really thrilling. Um, the downside, of course, is the hyperventilation that that creates in you as you realize you can't possibly keep track of all of this stuff. And that sense that your head is going to explode is if and when you try to do so. So it, it's a weird kind of sensation, but it, on balance, I think thrilling and, and fun. So I've got a thing going on Substack, and I publish sometimes on Medium and sometimes at culturebuy.com. 
And sometimes that mappingthefuture.com, that's mapping-the-future.com. And yeah, that's me. Thank you. It's great to have diversity of ways to connect, right? So yeah, totally. And by the way, if you don't subscribe to the Grant Substack, you absolutely should. It really is great, great stuff. So that's it for this edition of the Greenberg Podcast. Thank you to our listeners for joining us as we tried to dive deep into some thorny, weighty topics and hopefully come back up for air at the end. So we'll leave folks on a positive note. Thank you to our producer, Natalie, to our editor, James, to our sponsor. And thank you, Dave and Grant, for taking the time to share your brilliance with us. We will do it again at some point in the next few months. Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.